This podcast is part of the Democracy Group. Welcome to Democracy Matters, the podcast of the James Madison Center for Civic Engagement at James Madison University. I'm your co-host, Kara ong I'm Logan Ziegler, Program Coordinator at JMU Civic. And I'm Ryan Ritter, an Undergraduate Democracy Fellow at JMU Civic. Joining us for this episode is Marilyn Howd, who graduated from James Madison University in 2009 with a degree in International Affairs. She commissioned from JMU ROTC as a Quartermaster Officer. She subsequently served as Civil Affairs Officer in the 95th Civil Affairs Brigade in Fort Bragg, North Carolina, as both team leader and company commander. She rose to the rank of captain. She is now a clinical research project manager and received her MBA from the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill. In her free time, Marilyn volunteers to help veterans as they transition into the civilian world. Thank you so much for joining us, Marilyn. I wonder if you can start by sharing why you joined the military and did you realize what you were getting into when you joined the ROTC at JMU? Sure. So, I decided to join the military very early on in my childhood. My family has a history of military service, but in El Salvador, which is where my parents are from. I'm actually um, a first generation American. I was born in Los Angeles, California. My parents immigrated here in the 80s um, because of the conflict, the civil war going on in El Salvador. So that played a role in influencing me to want to join the military. And then at the same time, I was always brought up with this sense of gratitude of being born in the U.S. and the opportunities I had here. So it was my way of giving back. And as far as knowing what I was getting into, going into ROTC, I would say that I I did. I had an idea because I actually enlisted in the military in 2004. So I had gone to basic training. I had this frame of reference for military training. But what I was not expecting is the commitment of the cadets, um, you know, college students that take on this extra responsibility, um, PT hours in the early morning, extra classes, extra, extra time to do planning for field exercises or the weekly labs that we would have, which would be, which would be hands-on training. So I was not expecting that level of commitment from college students, and it was very impressive. Where were you on September 11, 2001, and what do you remember about how that day changed you? On 9-11-2001, I was actually in El Salvador during the attacks. So although I was born in the U.S., I did spend my childhood between both countries. So I would spend a few years in the U.S., a few years in El Salvador. And during that stretch of time, I was in the ninth grade in an all-girls Catholic school. I can't remember what class we were in, but one of the nuns interrupted class and she walked in and I remember her her words were, the U.S. is under attack. Planes have taken over New York City. And in my head, I'm imagining, you know, fighter jets over the New York City skyline. I had no idea what was going on. We didn't have, um, we didn't have TVs in the classroom. So I had to wait until class was over to actually see what had happened. And it was, it was very interesting because everyone else around me was looking at it as this is happening to them. And to me, it was, this is happening to my home. So it really just um, solidified my identity as an American. And, you know, it really did um, kind of burn into my mind that the U.S. is my home. And, you know, this happened to us. Um, This happened to my country. 
Um, I was wondering if you can share your experiences serving in the Civil Affairs Battalion based out of Fort Bragg, North Carolina, and how did those experiences impact you? Sure. So um, I was a civil affairs officer with a focus on Latin America, and that was actually the 98th Civil Affairs Battalion, part of the 95th Civil Affairs Brigade, the larger organization. So the interesting part about that is that we were, the brigade is involved in operations all over the world. So when people think the global war on terror, Operation Enduring Freedom, at my, my time, um, it's mainly the Middle East, but I focused on Latin America and my deployments with civil affairs were to Peru and Colombia. At the time, Colombia had, had not had their peace agreement yet, so they were still um, in their ongoing conflict. Um, that was back in uh, when I was there was towards the end of 2015 into 2016. So it gave me a better understanding and insight into our efforts when it came to fighting terrorism, when it came to the global war on terror and what that entailed and, and where we were uh, putting our, our investment, our resources. So for example, when we were in Peru and Colombia, those weren't really military operations that you would think of, what you see on TV, what you see in the movies. So we weren't going in there um, kicking down doors. We weren't involved in, in your traditional military operations, as people might think. It was really focusing on how do we improve governance in certain areas of the region using defense, diplomacy, and development, partnering with um, government agencies from the US and from Peru and Colombia, development agencies, local military, local uh, police, those were two of our biggest partners. And then as well, also private um, businesses, they also have an interest to see governance and development um, expand in those regions. So, you know, it, it gave me a better frame of reference, um, especially through my training and through the deployments that the global war on terror Operation Enduring Freedom wasn't just centered in the Middle East. Now, I did deploy also to the Middle East. My first um, deployment, actually, it was my second. My first deployment was to Haiti after the earthquake in 2010. But I also deployed to the Middle East as a mortuary affairs platoon leader. And that entailed Kuwait, Iraq, and Afghanistan. And we were in charge of bringing back home the casualties of the war. So we were in Iraq during the drawdown and 2011, and then we were also in Afghanistan. So I also got to see the ramifications of the conflict from that end. And I can tell you right now that most of the casualties we saw coming through our collection points were under 25 years old. So when we talk about the what was invested, the sacrifice that was made during this effort, you know, we are seeing young people under 25 years old, and those were the the majority of the casualties we saw. So I got to see it from both ends. And I think that really did impact, uh, influence how I saw our involvement around the world. Marilyn, you mentioned improving governance through defense diplomacy and development. I wonder from your experiences, if you can speak a little bit more um, to the role, especially of military diplomacy and development um, as it related to American foreign policy more broadly and what role it played specifically in the global war on terror and Operation Enduring Freedom? Well, as far as foreign policy more broadly, I think we can see it in the spending, the aid we send 
across the world, not just um, to the Middle East, like I was mentioning, where we normally think of when we're thinking about the global war on terror. But we also saw increased spending and resources being sent to Asia, also being sent to Africa, to um, Latin America. And I'll, I'll focus on, on Latin America because that was my, my area of expertise. Um, the Southern approach, the Southern border became of increased um, interest to us because we were trying, we, we were trying to protect ourselves. We were trying to see where our threats are coming from. We can't ignore that after 9-11, our border security became even more important. I mean, it always was. My parents having immigrated from the 80s, um, I, that was something that I always knew, um, that the southern border was um, a major point of entry for immigrants in, in the US. But there was increased um, emphasis and increased scrutiny after 9-11. Also, um, I will just say that um, there was a greater focus on having an integral approach to governance. So as I mentioned, it's not just military operations in the traditional sense. Um, when we were down in um, Peru and in Colombia, as I mentioned, we were partnering, not just us, so we were there advising. And we were helping our counterparts find those, find that collaboration with their local um, government agencies, uh, development agencies, private businesses. And I'll also say is that there, there is a better understanding on what is needed to create governance in, in an area. It's not just going to be, um, you know, going in there, securing an area and making sure that any nefarious actors are gone. It's, it really does take influence. It takes convincing the population that this is the right way to go and, and having their buy-in in order for your plan to work. Can you speak to your experience being a woman serving in the military as well as the opportunities and the challenges women face both within the service and as they are deployed abroad? So I loved my time in the military. Um, the men and women I served with uh, till this day, they're some of the longest friendships I have. And they come both from my time as a quartermaster officer and also as a civil affairs officer. Especially as a civil affairs officer, um, we were a very small groups, group of women. Um, it is part of special operations, so you don't see that many women. But um, you know, the, the few that we were there, we became really close because we had that shared experience and, and we did go through some of the same challenges and, and we were each other's support and sounding board. Um, you know, as far as opportunities, I, I think that as a young professional coming in in your 20s and being thrown into um, roles of responsibilities that are above what you would expect, you know, someone straight out of college to to experience. I think that's really good as far as professional development and also personal development because it just forces you to take on these challenges and solve the problems. I think that gave me a, it gave me this mindset of a problems in front of me, I'll figure it out because in a previous lifetime, I didn't have the option to say I can't do this. I just had to figure it out. So now whenever I'm I'm faced with a problem at work. Um, now that I'm no longer in the army, it's usually, okay, I can figure this out, you know, or if I don't know, somebody else knows, we can go figure it out. Um, so that was very, um, I think that was very beneficial in, in my young professional um, years. 
and also, you know, the ability to travel the world, experience different cultures. Um, I loved my time in Latin America uh, and, and working with them. Um, a lot of times we say that we're there to advise and assist. But honestly, you learn so much more from your counterparts sometimes. For example, the Colombian army, they have been doing civil affairs for over 50 years now. They've been fighting or they were fighting in their own backyard. And that was admirable. We learned so much from them. And we also applied those lessons in other places that we deployed to. So just, you know, um, just professional development wise, putting you in those uh, positions of responsibility and, and just forcing you to face your challenges head on, um, being able to experience other cultures, learn from them. And then just the appreciation of being an American living in the US. Um, you know, I, 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 like I said, I went to Haiti after the earthquake in 2010. Um, we weren't living anywhere fancy. We were sitting right outside City Soleil. So I, I got to see, you know, the, the conditions people lived in and, and the sacrifice and um, just, you know, makes you appreciate the comforts of home much more. Same thing coming back uh, from my deployment in the Middle East. Um, I, I was so happy to be back and be with my family and just made me more appreciative of the sacrifice that, you know, so many people made over there that did not return home. So I think that's the other um, opportunity that was given to me is just um, learning to be a little bit more grateful and also empathetic of, of other people's situation around the world. Um, and, and that's just not so much just as a woman, just as a person in general. And um, as far as challenges go, um, specifically as, as a woman, in the military and, and in a branch where you don't see many women in civil affairs, I think um, some of the biggest challenges we saw were that there weren't many of us. And our, I'd like, I think that the way Hollywood and TV portrays special operations is guilty of this. So people have in their mind what special operations looks like. And you know, you'll think your Green Berets, your Navy SEALs, um, kicking down doors, you know, doing cool guy stuff. And, and that's not it. Like, that's a part of it. That's a big part, but it's not just that. So there's people that have a certain mindset um, of what they think special operations should look like within the force. And someone like me, someone like my, my women peers, they, we don't fit that mold. So you walk in, you know, you're a brand new team leader, just graduated the qualification course, and you take on your first team and, you know, you, you hear comments like, oh, so-and-so is joining your team. They graduated top of their class. They're a native Spanish speaker, but it's a woman. So <laughs> immediately you're just like, oh, okay, so I have to prove myself. Um, you know, we, we've heard comments of company commanders not wanting women in their ranks because it just wasn't conducive to their mission. So we, you would have some of that pushback. And I'd have to say that we did not see it so much from our peers um, because we trained with them or our team members, we trained with them, we lived with them. I, I mean, I lived um, six months at a time with only men in a house in Colombia and Peru. We were fine. You know, there, there weren't any issues. We had great rapport, great team cohesion. We saw that mentality and that hesitance to accept women, mainly from our senior leadership, unfortunately. And I think it's just a generational thing. They came from a time when civil affairs was, was being introduced into the active component under, um, I, I think it was under a different, 
uh, under a different objective. I, I think they had a different idea of what civil affairs is going to be. So as I mentioned before, it's just that we probably just did not fit that idea of, of what they expected civil affairs was going to turn on, turn like. And you know that just also, um, it translated to other things where it was hard to find mentorship sometimes from our senior leaders. Um, we've had, we also had senior leaders say they did not feel comfortable mentoring a young 20 something year old captain because it might not look good. It might cause them problems in their marriage. So, and this was during like leadership development forums uh, when we were talking about the challenges of mentoring women. So, um, you know, some of those things um, that you see when, when you're a young captain in their twenties and, and you kind of take those in, you internalize them. And sometimes it feels like you're not, like you don't belong in your own branch. So those were some of the challenges um, we faced. But I will say that talking to some of the women that are currently in the branch and um, are serving as captains, majors, it's changing for the better. And that's great because, you know, uh, we are seeing um, leaders that leaders rise through the ranks that do have a a good idea of the contributions that women have in in civil affairs and also it's it's helping retention of, of female officers um, out of all the women that i served with and, and graduated the qualification course with um, all of us left the military after our initial commitment and it wasn't because of performance um, because we you know we've gone on to do great in our professional career and you know gone on to great schools, uh, grad school, and, you know, are doing great in the civilian world. So I think it, it, it does, um, I think some of the attitudes we saw definitely impacted our decision. Marilyn, is there anything that you wish the public would appreciate more about the U.S.'s response to the attacks of September 11th that may be lacking in the mainstream narratives? Yes, I think I'm going to sound like a broken record <laughs> because I'll say that um, I think we need to appreciate more the breadth of our involvement after 9-11. Um, you know, it's not just the Middle East. Um, we have to look at our operations in Africa and our operations in Latin America and Asia and just what it involves. It, it's not just people with guns going on patrols. It involves, like you said, those three Ds. It, it involves um, defense efforts, diplomacy efforts, development efforts. And, you know, I'll put a very big D on the development effort because that's how you're going to sustain um, your, your, what you achieve in those countries is going to be through those development efforts. I wonder if you can speak from your perspective about the consequences of that, that broadened effort and, and sort of the commitments essentially and that the United States made post-September 11th and what the consequences have been for domestic and foreign policy in the United States. For domestic policy, though, the one thing I can say is that um, there was an increase in government spending for military efforts. So, you know, there is some scrutiny. Maybe there's also some pushback on the amount of military spending that has that has been committed um, since 9-11 and how it's been used and if it's been used effectively. I think that's a conversation we are going to continue to see. Um, and, and it will get scrutinized some more, especially now that we're, um, we're um, decreasing our involvement in Afghanistan. And now that we are um, withdrawing our military from Afghanistan, 
as far as foreign policy goes and our commitment, I think there needs to be greater appreciation into how much the US has committed around the globe under the umbrella of the global war on terror. And I think the public in general just needs to understand that the global war on terror is not just did not just happen in the Middle East. It did not just happen in Iraq and Afghanistan. We have troops and not just troops, resources committed around the world fighting the global war on terror. It's not just Iraq and Afghanistan. And it has been a great commitment on the US, from the US. And it's not, again, it's not just on the military side. It, it involves um, other government agencies. It also involves development efforts um, that are playing hand in hand with the military and also our diplomats. In June, President Joe Biden announced U.S. troop withdrawal from Afghanistan, as you mentioned, by September 11, 2021. As we engage in this conversation in July 2021, Taliban fighters are taking or retaking districts in Afghanistan. There are also ongoing attacks on U.S. facilities and on the U.S.-led coalition in Iraq. What concerns do you have about the future of Afghanistan and Iraq and the Middle East more broadly? So as I mentioned um, a little bit, um, or as I mentioned before, you know, I, I really do feel that development is a, the development aspect of building governance is a key role in sustainability. And although we are withdrawing our troops and we won't have that presence there, I am more concerned of our involvement in maintaining any gains we made on the development side, because that's eventually what is going to prove if our strategy there was a success or not. I, I'm also, um, you know, I, I actually, I, I do think that we do not have the structure in place for um, Afghanistan cont to continue on their own without us. Um, I am concerned for the people that supported us, our allies that we are leaving back there. For example, our interpreters, um, as, uh, as part of my training, uh, my, uh, in civil affairs, I also learned Arabic and one of my instructors was an interpreter in Iraq, um, not in Afghanistan, in Iraq um, for um, US soldiers. And he was able to come over to the US and now he's he he works here as as a language instructor, but he is so grateful for the opportunity to be here in the US. He supported us and you know he even went back um, to Iraq uh, a few years ago to work again as an interpreter, this time as a US citizen. But then you know he's back back here in North Carolina. And you know, I'd like to see more examples of that. I, I hope that we are able to help more of those people that did support us during our effort there and they are not left behind. I think that is that is a one of my my biggest worries besides the sustainability of our of our efforts there. We know that democracy requires shared sacrifice and gratitude to those who have sacrificed. And from the bottom of our hearts, Marilyn, we thank you for the sacrifices that you've made. And while we recognize the fundamental reality that sacrifice is an unequal burden, I was wondering what advice do you have for individuals who have not served in the military? for how they can contribute to preserving, strengthening, and reimagining democracy. Sure, well, you know, um, service and building democracy is not just a monopoly of the military. Uh, service comes from, comes in various shapes and forms. And I've learned this through through my work in, in South America, you know, especially in Colombia, seeing 
all these lines of efforts working towards ending the conflict. You know, service comes from organizing as a community. I saw that in in Peru, where previous um, coca com communities that grew coca, they organized and um, and they found alternative crops. They found they made communities, governance communities that um, helped bring development projects to their to their little towns where they did not have that before. So I would say that just find something with a purpose greater than yourself, something with a purpose um, that you are giving something towards your community um, to make it better. It does not have to be in the military. It can be in the form of volunteering. You know, it could be a teacher. It could be tutoring. Um, so I would just say getting involved, getting to know your neighbors, getting to know your community as a whole is the way that um, we will be able to um, sustain, build and sustain democracy. Hi, podcast listeners. Thank you for tuning into this episode of Democracy Matters. Editing and production was done by Jacqueline Dobrin, JMU Civics Communications Specialist. Randy Bednikus, Director of Digital Marketing at JMU, does the syndication for us. Our theme song is Sometimes It Shines by Pictures of the Floating World. Be sure to follow us on social media. You can tweet your questions and ideas to us at JMUCivic, and we'll address them in a future episode. You can also connect and engage with us on Facebook at JMUCivic. Learn more about the James Madison Center for Civic Engagement at James Madison University on our website at j.mu/civic. Until next time.